I have a fight. Hold on, Joe. You got a big one, baby. Hold on to it now. You want to fight? Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 211, Godzilla. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, hello, welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener or an irregular returning listener, coming back to the podcast. Thank you, as always, so much for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And I'm really excited. Because we're going to be talking about the history and legacy of Godzilla, but specifically Godzilla 1998. And this is a movie that I've wanted to talk about for a a very, very long time. And forewarning, this episode is going to be a big one. It's going to be as big as Godzilla himself. And by that, I don't mean it's going to fluctuate in size. It is going to be one size and it's going to be huge. But before I go into that, I just want to say, as always, thank you so much for the wonderful reception to previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you so much to the wonderful reception for the recent announcement about the Independent Podcast Awards, which is something that I've co-created and I'm also working with Why Now on. There's information on that on my social media. But I don't want to talk too much about it because I appreciate that many people who listen to this podcast are not independent podcasts, but it's something that I've been spearheading and it's something that I'm really really passionate about so if you are a UK or Ireland independent podcast then please have a look at the information on my social media and go to the website and enter those awards that would be amazing if you would the previous episodes of this podcast I'm talking about Heathers and the host and I am still recovering from laryngitis ever so slightly I still have a little tiny tickle in my throat and my voice still isn't 100% There will be no Godzilla roars from me in this episode, but I'm sure that's not particularly a disappointment to anyone. The reception to the host specifically has been really, really positive. There's always a little bit of a worry when you're doing a movie podcast, especially when you're talking about movies that maybe aren't particularly mainstream and that not many people have seen. And you wonder, well, is anyone actually going to listen to this episode? And I worry about it for every single episode, to be honest, because even if it is a movie like Heathers, for example, that is so widely known and so many people have seen it, you do wonder, well, is anyone actually going to listen? And I was a little bit worried about the reception to the host, but I needn't have worried because the host has just been doing exceptionally well. I'm really proud of that episode. And June on Verbal Diorama is really exciting because it's Kaijun and it's a month of Kaiju movies. Some movies, like The Host, that you might not know, but some that you will know. And he's here, the grandfather of Kaiju. But he's not how many fans expected him to be. And while Zilla, as he's now known, has fervent fans out there who love this incarnation of the character, there are just as many who see him as a blight on Godzilla lore. But no matter what you think of this American remake, the way he looks, or the so-called plot, because there's not much of a plot in this movie, 
One thing's for sure, the story behind Godzilla 1998 is incredible. And I'm really excited to get into it. So I'm just going to pile a huge amount of fish in Central Park for you to devour as we let the trailer for Godzilla emerge from the depth. of extensive nuclear testing in the South Pacific Ocean, scientist Nick Totopoulos is summoned by the US Army to shed light on a mystery attack on a fishing ship and the ominous sightings of a gargantuan reptilian beast. Before long, a mutated scaly nightmare named Gojira by the Japanese fisherman threatens to level the rain-soaked New York City against the backdrop of crippling bureaucracy and the military's futile attempts to stop the now-named Godzilla from reproducing. Now it's up to Nick, cryptic insurance agent Philippe, determined reporter Audrey and brave cameraman Victor to put an end to Godzilla's reign of terror before it's too late. Let's run through the cast. We have Matthew Broderick as Dr. Nick Topolis, Jean Renault as Philippe Roche, Maria Patillo as Audrey Timmons, Hank Azaria as Victor Animal Pilotti, Kevin Dunn as Colonel Hicks, Michael Lerner as Mayor Ebert, Harry Shearer as Charles Kamen and Arabella Field as Lucy Pilotti. Godzilla was written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio and Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich and was directed by Roland Emmerich. And the Hollywood era of Godzilla is now, in 2023, on fine form, actually. 2014's Godzilla was widely praised and a box office success, spawning the sequel Godzilla King of the Monsters, the pseudo spin-off Kong Skull Island, and the crossover event Godzilla vs. Kong, with the sequel to that, Godzilla x Kong The New Empire, due out next year in 2024. It seems that it's a great time to be a fan of the King of the Monsters, whether you're only watching the Hollywood-produced versions of Godzilla, aka the Monsterverse, or the Reiwa era of Toho's continuation of the character. A new Toho Godzilla film is due out this year after the success of Shin Godzilla in 2016, and the Netflix animated Godzilla Planet of the Monsters, Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle, and Godzilla the Planet Eater. But Hollywood's attempt at Godzilla originally came much earlier, and it was deemed a lot less successful than Gareth Edwards' attempt in 2014. And if we're going to talk about the story of 1998's Godzilla, and trust me, there is a lot of story here, then we actually need to start in 1983. Steve Miner, who'd been the associate producer and assistant director on Friday the 13th, and gone on to direct Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3, acquired the rights from Toho in 1983 to produce an American version of Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters in 3D, and also direct the project. He wanted big budget, A-list stars, huge special effects, focusing on the fact the movie would be 3D. If you remember, 3D in the 80s was a thing. He hired Fred Decker to write a screenplay. Fred Decker has obviously appeared on this podcast before. He wrote The Monster Squad. And Decker wasn't a Godzilla fan, unlike Miner, 
and remained uninfluenced by the history of Godzilla, having never seen any of Toho's films all the way through. Hundreds of storyboards were created for what was going to be a state-of-the-art Godzilla movie with miniatures, stop-motion creature effects and suitmation. Rick Baker was even hired to build a full-scale animatronic Godzilla head, but never actually ended up starting. And this was mainly due to the fact that no studio was willing to invest in such a risky project. The budget was estimated between 25 and $30 million. Again, bear in mind, this is the early 80s at this point. Steve Miner was hardly a well-known director at the time, and so he let the rights revert back to Toho, who produced a domestic Godzilla film, which was not intended for international release, called The Return of Godzilla. And that kicked off Toho's high era of the character. And before I go into anything else, let's just summarise the eras of Godzilla. So you have the Showa era from 1954 to 1975. That is Godzilla to Terror of Mechagodzilla. The Heisei era from 1984 to 1995, the return of Godzilla to Godzilla versus Destoroyah. The Millennium era, 1999 to 2004, Godzilla 2000 Millennium to Godzilla Final Wars. And the Reiwa era, 2016 to present, starting with Shin Godzilla in 2016 through to the untitled Toho Godzilla film due out this year. Now, there's no shortage of Godzilla. And the history and legacy of Godzilla from 1954 through to now, that's almost 70 years of cinematic history. And it's as rich and varied as the story of Hollywood's attempt at making their own Godzilla. In many ways, the story of Godzilla and Japan's history with the character is actually for another episode, one that may be coming next week, because yes, I am doing the double on Godzilla. But as a rule, Godzilla and his creation by Tomoyuki Tanaka, Ishiro Honda and Eiji Tsuburaya is the benchmark for monster movies across world cinema. 38 films, 33 of which were made in Japan, 5 American, a monster awakened and powered by nuclear radiation and an allegory for the effects of the atomic bomb. Over the years, Godzilla has changed, his look has changed, his foes have changed, but it's safe to say that no version of Godzilla has been as divisive, as derided, and in many ways, as adored as TriStar's 1998 version of the character. But I'm jumping ahead of myself here. We've briefly talked about Steve Miner's 1983 attempt, King of the Monsters in 3D, but that's not the only time Hollywood wanted a piece of sweet, sweet Godzilla, and it leads us to a sweet, sweet obligatory Keanu reference for later. So we're actually going to jump from 1983, and we're actually going to go back in time to the 1960s. It's not something that I do very often. I normally try and keep the timeline going forward, but it makes sense to go back to the 1960s because this is where the relationship between the head of United Productions of America, Henry G. Saperstein, and Toho. Saperstein contacted Toho in 1964 and would acquire the US theatrical and TV rights to what would be the next Godzilla movie, which was Mothra versus Godzilla. A production deal was agreed and Saperstein invested money story ideas, and occasionally American actors to Toho in exchange for North American distribution rights. Saperstein was essentially Godzilla's US agent. He set up licensing and merchandise deals. He licensed the character to Marvel, Mattel, Hanna-Barbera, and advertising campaigns for Dr. Pepper and Nike. Fast forward 30 or so years. This is after the Steve Miner version, obviously. This is in the early 90s. And Henry G. Saperstein wanted to translate Godzilla to an American audience with a proper Hollywood franchise. He pressured Toho to allow him to pitch to American studios. He met with producers Kerry Woods and Robert M. Freed. Woods was vice president to Sony Picture Studio head Peter Goober, and Freed was formerly of Orion Pictures and a recent Oscar winner. Together, they were developing films for Sony's Columbia and TriStar divisions. While their original plan was to develop a live-action Mr. Magoo, which would instead be optioned and released by Disney, Saperstein would mention the remake rights to Godzilla were available and Woods and Freed instantly recognised the character's potential as a big brand new US franchise with an important anti-war and anti-nuke message. They pitched the idea for a US Godzilla remake to Columbia Pictures, who immediately passed because they felt it could descend into camp. Its sister company TriStar also originally passed, despite vice president of production Chris Lee being extremely interested in the character. Because they were getting nowhere, Woods would go over both Columbia and TriStar executives' heads and take it directly to the top to Peter Goober, chairman of the board and chief executive officer of Sony Pictures. Goober was Woods' former boss and generally didn't take pitches. Unable to go to his office directly because that would make it obvious that he was going over the heads of the Columbia and TriStar executives, Woods flew to an event in Florida where Goober was speaking 
and pitched to him directly after his speaking engagement about Godzilla. And that was enough. Goober was sold. And he set up Godzilla at Tristar, and negotiations between Tristar and Toho were launched in mid-1992. Toho had a win-win situation with Sony Pictures. Their offer included the use of the Godzilla character in a significant American film starring A-list talent in exchange for an advance payment of $300,000 to $400,000 and an annual licensing charge. In addition, Toho would get production bonuses, Japanese distribution and merchandise rights, and a cut for the revenue from global ticket and merchandise sales. In addition, while the TriStar movie was in production, Toho could keep producing their own Japanese Godzilla films. In return, Toho had a list of specifics for the character of Godzilla, allegedly 75 pages long, a list of do's and don'ts. Rules like he must be created by a nuclear accident. He does not eat people. He must have three rows of dorsal fins. He must have four claws on each hand and foot and a long tail. Most importantly, Godzilla must not be made fun of and Godzilla cannot die. According to the terms of the agreement between Toho and Sony Pictures, Toho would provide TriStar the character and likeness of Godzilla to use in American film that TriStar would develop, promote and distribute, with the exception of Japan where Toho would control the film and be in charge of distribution. Sony would have the international rights to the production. The two studios would hold onto these rights indefinitely, ensuring that the movie and the monster that it was made for would always be protected by copyright and known as Godzilla around the world. And it's still an important detail, and this would cause many Godzilla fans a huge amount of irritation for reasons that I'm going to come to. Sony Pictures also received the usage rights to the majority of the monsters from the first 15 Godzilla films made by Toho from 1954 to 1975, and they were given the ability to create an animated spin-off television series which would eventually lead to Godzilla the series, which is a follow-on from this movie and is apparently very good. They also acquired merchandising rights outside of Japan. The American company was given the opportunity to make more Godzilla pictures, which would be handled in a picture-by-picture -picture manner with Toho, even though sequels were not guaranteed by the deal. Toho would also control the character and likeness of the US Godzilla and would be free to include TriStar's Godzilla in their own productions once the deal with Sony ended. Again, that's an important point I'm going to be coming back to. Tomoyuki Tanaka, the co-creator of Godzilla, who the 1998 film would be dedicated to after his death in 1997, would say of the deal, quote, TriStar has promised us they will maintain and preserve the character of Japan's Godzilla. I'm looking forward to seeing Godzilla created by the American people. We'd like to have Godzilla go out to the world, unquote. Godzilla was fast-tracked into development with offers going out to writers and directors and an official announcement by TriStar in November 1992 with the best-case scenario production beginning in late 1993 and Godzilla was tentatively scheduled with a Christmas 1994 release. This isn't the first time I'm going to talk about the dinosaur in the room, but the industry knew Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park was coming out in May 1993. But even before that, Godzilla was expected to be a big-budget monster movie in a similar vein. I don't think they even predicted how similar the eventual movie would become. But again, getting ahead of myself, I'm going to come back to Jurassic Park. Early story pictures for Godzilla would come from Clive Barker, Jim Thomas and John Thomas. But the winning writers were Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who were hired in May 1993. At that point, they only had two notable credits to their names, Little Monsters and Disney's Aladdin, but they would go on to become two of the most commercially successful screenwriters in Hollywood, working on The Mask of Zorro, Shrek, Pirates of the Caribbean. The pair turned down Godzilla several times because they weren't sure what to do with a US remake of Godzilla. They wrote a three-and-a-half-page story outline for Carrie Woods and they were immediately hired. Their screenplay, a female-centric story focused on a mother and daughter after their husband and father is killed by Godzilla in an Arctic expedition gone wrong, also includes a villainous alien power, a massive monster that mutates out of control, and the idea that Godzilla is the defender of the Earth rather than destructor are all explicit references made in the script to past films in the franchise. The Elliot Rossio script also includes enormous killer bats, cow mutilations, a covert agency dedicated solely to find Godzilla, and a sleazy monster hunter playing one of the key protagonists. The griffon, a monstrous foe of Godzilla, has enormous wings, cat-like eyes, and a mouth made of snakes. The script states that the nightmare has been born when the creature rises from the ground. 
The griffin was actually supposed to be the infamous nemesis King Ghidorah, but Elliot and Rossio didn't have the rights to use that character. And if this all starts to sound a little bit expensive, it actually kind of was. And I'm going to come to expense a bit later. Tim Burton had expressed an interest in directing. He'd just done Batman Returns. But Woodson Freed offered Godzilla to Roland Emmerich and his writing producing partner, Dean Devlin. Emmerich had just made Universal Soldier, his first Hollywood directorial gig. But he wasn't a fan of Godzilla. And the pair rejected the offer to make Godzilla 1994. Obviously, the story didn't end for Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin. But it's important to note that they were offered Godzilla in 1994 and they rejected the offer. Tim Burton was still interested and was a known fan of Godzilla, but they were worried that he would make it campy. And then Burton would move on to make Ed Wood instead. Producers then approached Joe Dante, most well known for Gremlins, that's episode 74 of this podcast, but he remained sceptical. Other big name directors turning it down included Ridley Scott, James Cameron, the Coen brothers and Terry Gilliam. Also considered were Barry Sonnenfeld, Sam Raimi and Joe Johnston. But no director could be found, and the search continued into June 1994 when Sony Pictures Imageworks bid to do digital effects for Elliot and Rossio's Godzilla, and they created a CG Godzilla for a visual effects test. At this point, the deal between Kerry Woods, Robert Freed, and Sony Pictures was over, and the two decided not to renew, and soon after, Godzilla producers had their director. In the first week of July, Jan de Bont signed on, mere weeks after Speed released in the US and became a huge hit. He was at the time the director everyone wanted, but de Bont only had eyes for Godzilla and was a huge fan of the Toho films. De Bont had read the Godzilla script before, but without the clout of speed, no one considered him as a director, despite his many years of cinematography experience. He had signed a deal with 20th Century Fox just after Speed's release, but to keep de Bont happy and ensure he would make Speed 2, Fox let him out of the option with their studio so he could make Godzilla for TriStar. And this is when legendary effects maestro Stan Winston also gets involved. He was hired to create a new technologically advanced suit, because we are talking practical effects here, animatronics, based on Ray Harryhausen's stop-motion beasts like King Kong and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Winston and his team provided samples and artwork. Bear in mind, this was not that long after their work with Steven Spielberg on Jurassic Park. And the plan was to repeat that success with Godzilla. They turned to Mark Crash McCreary for creature designs. McCreary's artwork impressed DeBont, and it was very typical of the Godzilla character design of the past, but more animated and less human. There were also in-house artists who worked on the project, like Ricardo Delgado, who got the job based on his dinosaur comic, Age of Reptiles, and he felt Godzilla needed to be a modern interpretation of what a creature of that size would be like in reality. But Godzilla 1994 unraveled as quickly as it came together. Digital Domain came on board for digital effects with the idea to have a mixture of practical and CG visual effects with Stan Winston Studios providing maquettes and Digital Domain scanning these to create CG versions of the character. And there are so many wonderful photographs online of the maquettes made. And this version of Godzilla looks a lot more like the 2014 US remake of Godzilla than the 1998 Godzilla, to be fair. But at that time, it did look like everything was going ahead for Godzilla 1994. Yandy Bond even went as far as to build a Japanese fishing town that would be destroyed in the movie's teaser trailer. He sent crews to the Oregon coast. Test footage was reportedly shot and reportedly also periodically appears online, but I have not found any footage. But by the end of 1994, DeBond was at a conflict with the studio over the intended budget for the movie. Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio had submitted a revised screenplay in December 1994, which was projected by the studio to cost $120 million, with approximately $15 million of that purely for visual effects. Jan de Bont was confident that it could be done, possibly for less, but despite this, TriStar refused de Bont's request to go ahead for $120 million, claiming that it had to be $100 million or less. And before the end of 1994, despite negotiation attempts, including Peter Goober, Jan de Bont departed the production, with Sony paying de Bont $4 million for his lost contract. By Christmas 1994, he was off Godzilla, and by the following month, he'd signed on to make Twister for an upfront $3 million, plus a percentage of the merchandising. With de Bont's departure, Sony Pictures shut down the production. In an effort to save the movie, Troy Star desperately needed to get the budget down. 
and pushed for a low-budget, traditional, practical effects-driven Godzilla with minimal CG. Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio retooled their script in spring 1995, and their contract had been fulfilled at that point. Sony went ahead and hired British screenwriter Don McPherson to undertake a fresh rewrite of the Elliott Rossio script. McPherson had previously worked with David Fincher in getting his problematic Alien 3 screenplay back to some kind of workable format. McPherson would cut much of Godzilla's big budget sequences and plan to make Godzilla as elusive in his own movie as possible. It would keep Elliot and Rossio's characters and locations, but make it feel more apocalyptic with a future setting of 1999. McPherson would continue revising his screenplay, but Sony once again shut the production down, this time indefinitely. In the final months of 1995, rumours began to swell that Sony were bringing in new management to run the studio. And this led to an opportunity to perhaps resurrect Godzilla with the double whammy team of Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin after the success of Stargate. Emmerich and Devlin had a reputation for delivering big profit on a small budget and their upcoming sci-fi alien invasion film Independence Day was generating tremendous buzz in the industry. It was down to Chris Lee to again pitch to Emmerich and Devlin the possibility of Godzilla. And again, they weren't keen. Devlin would describe the idea as, quote, dopey, unquote. Emmerich had already planned his Independence Day follow-up, a disaster pick called Ground Zero, a story of an asteroid hitting Earth. Then he realised both Disney and Paramount were also working on their own asteroid disaster movies, Armageddon and Deep Impact, respectively. And that put pains to that. With Ground Zero now not happening, Emmerich started to become tempted by the Godzilla idea. For its retro qualities, a true 50s monster movie that had never been remade for American audiences. They'd done something similar with The War of the Worlds becoming Independence Day, and Dean Devlin started to come round to the idea too. The deal was announced in May 1996. Emmerich and Devlin were headlining a new Godzilla project, and they started by watching Toho's original 1954 film. When it came to their script, they took part of the original movie's basic storyline in that the creature becomes created by radiation and some parts of Elliot and Rossio's original script. They then asked themselves, what would we do today with a monster movie and a story like that? They forgot everything about the original Godzilla and concentrated on what a modern Godzilla could be. Godzilla was viewed by Woods and Freed as a timeless character ready for a makeover using contemporary Hollywood special effects. And this was something that Jan de Bond and Toho had agreed on. However, there were also TriStar and Columbia executives who first rejected licensing the concept because they considered Godzilla to be nothing more than a campy, kitschy character that could never appeal to a broad international audience without a complete overhaul. Only if they could radically reimagine Godzilla into something wholly unique were Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin willing to take on the project. Sony were delighted and gave Emmerich and Devlin their blessing to completely reimagine the character and also to pitch this to Toho. To visualise their overhaul of Godzilla, Emmerich and Devlin turned to another longtime collaborator, Stargate and Independence Day production designer Patrick Totopoulos. The original Godzilla was one of the first movies I saw as a kid, Topolis wrote in his book The Art of Godzilla. It may well be the reason I got into this business. Godzilla is the monster all creature effects designers dream of designing. When Roland asked me if I wanted to design the new Godzilla, how long do you think it took me to say yes? Totopoulos had seen the designs for the Jan de Bond version of Godzilla and felt that Ricardo Delgado and Crash McCreary adopted a completely wrong approach. Rather than taking a fresh new direction, they attempted to tweak and enhance the original Godzilla. In his opinion, it was more disrespectful to alter something that already existed than to take a fresh new approach. Emmerich encouraged him to develop a quick, agile creature capable of running through the streets of New York at 500 miles per hour. Basically, Godzilla after a couple of gym sessions. It meant that the design had to vary from the previous one, which was slow and heavy, and this would leave Emmerich to be concerned about selling this new design to Toho. Totopolis designed Godzilla as essentially a dragon descended from an iguana and wanted to avoid any comparisons with the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. I keep mentioning Jurassic Park, who knows why, and gave him a protruding chin based on the character Shit Khan from Disney's 1967 Jungle Book for nobility reasons. In May 1996, Totopolis met with Emmerich and Devlin, who were starting to get cold feet about Godzilla at this point, but they fell in love with Totopolis's designs and the next hurdle was getting approval from Toho. And I think a lot of people who criticised this design believe Toho never approved it. 
While the filmmakers continued their promotional campaign for Independence Day, Totopolis created four different Color Godzilla concept art pieces and had a two-foot-tall maquette sculpted for a presentation at Toho's Tokyo headquarters. And they proudly showed it to Sony a few months before they showed it to Toho. Chris Lee was overjoyed with the new design, but the others at the studio were taken aback by how far Emmerich and Devlin had gone with their Godzilla design. Dean Devlin recalled them saying, quote, When Sony saw it, they had a complete heart attack. Toho will never accept it. You've ruined it. Why did you do this? Unquote. Despite their initial shock, Sony had grown more and more eager for Emmerich and Devlin to direct Godzilla because Independence Day would have a record-breaking opening weekend on the 3rd of July 1996 and was on track to become the biggest movie of 1996. The movie would earn more than $306 million in the US and $817 million worldwide. And ironically, Yandabon's Twister would be the year's second biggest blockbuster just behind Independence Day. The blockbuster success of Independence Day provided them more sway in their negotiations with Toho. In September 1996, Roland Emmerich and Patrick Totopoulos flew to Tokyo to present Godzilla to Toho executives, including Toho chairman Isao Matsuoka, Godzilla series producer Shogo Tomiyama and FX director Koichi Kawakita. Emmerich introduced the design and Totopoulos unveiled it to gasps and silence from the executives. They were speechless and they would ask the pair to return the next day. The following morning, Toho chairman Isao Matsuoka gave his blessing to Roland Emmerich and Patrick Totopoulos. Toho stated how different they'd made the character, that they'd taken such a far step away from the old one, quote, We feel you've kept the spirit of Godzilla. The sense of the character is still there. When we look at him, it's Godzilla and nothing else. So we're giving you the green light, unquote. They felt it was so different to their Godzilla that they now had two Godzillas to use and market, and two Godzillas is better than one Godzilla. Toho would ask for some small adjustments for the new design, another row of fins on his back, four fingers instead of five, but otherwise they were happy with everything else. And that's important to note at this point, Toho were happy with this design. When Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin's vision was given the go-ahead by Toho, the filmmakers proceeded with writing the screenplay. Emmerich and Devlin agreed to develop a screenplay entirely on spec, with the understanding that TriStar would either instantly accept it or return control of the script to them because Godzilla had still not been given a green light for production. Mark Canton approved the deal as one of his final acts as Sony Pictures' head of production. Emmerich and Devlin took the tale in an entirely different route from prior attempts. While including a few small ideas from Ted Elliott, Terry Rossio's Godzilla script, with the earlier writers receiving a story by credit. The griffon, probe bats and other alien animals that were extensively included in the early Godzilla screenplays were removed, and most of the story took place in New York City. By removing these elements, the filmmakers anticipated being able to make the movie on a considerably smaller budget than had been anticipated in 1994, which again, obviously pleased Sony. Now, making the monster all about radiation would have helped tie the American adaptation of Godzilla back to the character's origins, despite the apparent changes that Devlin and Emmerich were making to the monster. Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, however, made the decision to give the nuclear issue little more than lip service. Radiation is held responsible for the creature's creation, like in a number of 1950s American monster films, although it has little impact on the story as a whole. The symbolic characteristics have been attached to Godzilla ever since the character's conception were dropped in favour of reducing Godzilla to the status of a massive unpredictable animal as opposed to a man-made monster. As an animal, the American Godzilla would be vulnerable to human guns and other weapons, so rather than barreling through an onslaught of missiles and rocket fire as the Japanese Godzilla had done film after film, the new Godzilla would use its abilities to avoid attack. In addition to its incredible speed, Godzilla would be able to hide from certain enemies by tunneling underground. This was given to him after it was discovered that certain lizards bury themselves underground to evade predators. Another protective characteristic, though abandoned during production, was skin that could change colours like chameleon, allowing Godzilla to blend into his surroundings. But keeping Godzilla as an animal, not a monster, meant that filmmakers also abandoned one of Godzilla's most popular trademarks, the legendary atomic breath replacing it with power breath. The new Godzilla could exhale and blow objects away and also cause explosions with it. With all of the powerful and destructive abilities of the Toho versions stripped away, the new Godzilla would be a threat to mankind because of its ability to asexually reproduce hundreds more of his kind. 
While Toho's Godzilla had adopted a son or two over the decades, he had always been promoted by the studios as a male character, the king of the monsters. And suit actor Haruo Nakajima had often portrayed him with a tough guy swagger. But TriStar's Godzilla would lay hundreds of eggs at a time via parthenogenesis, a type of asexual reproduction used by some lizard species. These eggs would hatch baby Godzillas who would rapidly grow to each have hundreds of young of their own, quickly overrunning the planet while looking and acting remarkably like Jurassic Park's Velociraptors. But I'm sure that's a total coincidence. By this point, though, Godzilla still hadn't been given the green light by Sony to start production. The deal was soon greenlit for Centropolis Entertainment, the production company owned by Roland Emmerich, to create Godzilla for Sony Pictures. While TriStar would manage the movie's financing, distribution and marketing arrangements, Emmerich and Devlin were given complete creative control, that's important, over the script, production and directing of the movie. The Centropolis team would also get 15% of the movie's first dollar gross. Kerry Woods and Robert Freed, the original Godzilla producers, would be listed as executive producers on the movie but Devlin and Emmerich would be in charge. Centropolis was also lined up for two sequels with options for additional non-Godzilla movies. Early estimates placed Godzilla's production costs in the range of $65 million, although these numbers were soon revised upwards. Emmerich and Devlin ended up reassembling much of the team they'd used on Independence Day, including Patrick Topolas, visual effects supervisor Volker Engel, miniature effects supervisor Joe Viscasil, mechanical effects supervisor Clay Pinney and executive producer William Fay. Plans were for Godzilla and the baby Godzillas to be realised on screen through a variety of effects techniques. A digital Godzilla model, nicknamed Fred by the crew, was constructed by Viewpoint Data Labs for scenes involving CGI, while Patrick Totopoulos' studio also built a 124-scale Godzilla suit worn by stuntman Kurt Carley and a 1-6-scale animatronic torso with head and arms for shots in which Godzilla had to interact with models and props. But over time, many of the shots planned for the suit and animatronics were switched to CG. The film ended up with approximately 400 digital shots, 185 featuring Godzilla, while Totopolis live-action versions were only used for two dozen. The release date was set for 20th of May 1998, a prime spot for movie releases just before Memorial Day. This meant the pressure was on to hit a date, and the pressure was on to keep costs down, and the pressure was on to make people want to see this movie, because the marketing of this movie was great, until it wasn't as great. Almost a year before the official release of the movie, the first project Roland Emmerich was tasked with directing for Godzilla wasn't scenes for the movie, but for the teaser trailer. The trailer, which had a $600,000 budget, featured scenes that would not be present in the finished movie. The teaser, which was filmed in New York City's American Museum of Natural History, included Godzilla's foot smashing through a skylight in the roof to crush a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton and ended with the phrase, guess who's coming to town. The Godzilla teaser was released alongside Columbia Pictures' Men in Black on the 2nd of July 1997. And this teaser went crazy. It elicited cheers and applause from the audiences. The reaction was so overwhelmingly enthusiastic that theatres in America began advertising that the Godzilla trailer would be shown before screenings of Men in Black. Principal photography began on Godzilla in New York City in May 1997 with a cast headed by Matthew Broderick, Jean Renault, Maria Petillo and Hank Azaria, one of three of the Simpsons actors in this movie alongside Harry Shearer and Nancy Cartwright. But it's expensive to shoot on location in a city like New York. You have to close whole blocks. It infuriates residents. The New York shoot lasted four and a half weeks, ending up one day over schedule. Emmerich and Devlin also made the decision to set most of the story in the rain. Many detractors think they did this on purpose to not show the monster, but the rain actually made things worse because the rain machines and the nighttime shoots also added to the expense of the movie. The shoot moved to Los Angeles in June 1997 with tropical scenes filmed in Hawaii. The United States Marine Corps participated in the filming of the movie with F-18 Marine Reserve pilot Colonel Dwight Schmidt piloting the plane that fired the missiles that kill Godzilla at the end. But the hype surrounding Godzilla that had become so fervent with that teaser trailer started to diminish as filming went on. The lack of information about the film, the numerous rumours that circulated in the months before its debut, and the secrecy surrounding it worried Godzilla fans in particular. Multiple members of the Godzilla cast made comments that showed little respect for the Toho films, and made it clear that the new Godzilla would have little resemblance to the creature fans wanted to see, which only served to heighten concerns of fans. 
They voiced their displeasure with phone calls, letters and emails to Sony Pictures and Centropolis. They'd heard rumours about the lack of atomic breath and they wanted it to be reinstated. However, the early concerns paled in comparison to the controversy that followed the leaking of the new Godzilla design. The artwork and sculptures for Godzilla were leaked online in late 1997, despite Centropolis and Sony's efforts to stop it. The backlash that the modified appearance of the monster received from fans prompted Dean Devlin to try to take corrective action. He would state they put out five sets of fake drawings to discover licensee leaks. Tiger Electronics and Fruit of the Loom both had their licenses to produce Godzilla goods withdrawn because of these leaks. However, it was later discovered that the allegedly fake images actually exact illustrations of Patrick Topolis' redesigned Godzilla and that Dean Devlin was exerting some form of damage control. And as I'm going to come to, the marketing of this movie made great pains to not show the monster at all. So the fact that the monster leaked was a big problem for this movie. Zilla, as he would eventually be renamed, has only ever made two appearances in film. This movie and Godzilla Final Wars, where Godzilla and Zilla face off, with Zilla being unceremoniously and speedily defeated by Godzilla after attacking Sydney. But talking of speed, segue to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. This is a part of the podcast where I try to link every movie that I feature with Keanu Reeves. And I mentioned last episode on The Host that I thought that I was going to find it difficult to link Keanu to kaiju movies. And then Godzilla 1998, Yandebont, ding, in my brain, because Yandebont was a huge Godzilla fan and was originally in line to direct Godzilla in 1994 due to the success of a little movie called Speed, starring the one and only Mr. Keanu Reeves. It is one of Keanu's finest roles that he's ever done. I absolutely adore Speed so much. Easy obligatory Keanu reference, maybe a little bit too easy. We'll see how that bodes for me next episode. I do need to talk about the soundtrack to this movie just quickly because it contains some actual genuine bangers, most notably Jamiroquai's Deeper Underground and Puff Daddy featuring Jimmy Page's Come With Me, which features a sample of Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. Deeper Underground was Jamiroquai's first and only UK number one and has a fantastic video. Interestingly, the extras in the video were not told that the cinema setting would be flooding so their terrified reactions are completely genuine. Come With Me would reach number two here in the UK and number four in the US Billboard Hot 100. The soundtrack also includes tracks by The Wallflowers, Rage Against the Machine, Ben Folds 5, Foo Fighters and Green Day. But let's talk about the marketing. Because this movie was riding high off the popularity of Godzilla, the character, Independence Day, the movie that Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin had done before, and Jurassic Park. The marketing of Godzilla is a masterclass in what to do and what not to do with a movie like this. Bob Levin, president of Worldwide Marketing for Sony Pictures Entertainment and his crew, were entirely unprepared for one of Emmerich and Devlin's first demands when they received the green light to make Godzilla, and that was of the marketing. They requested that Sony not use any full body or head photos of the new Godzilla in marketing the movie and instead create excitement by teasing the monster but never revealing it. They felt this would reward those who actually went to the cinema to see the movie. And the You Can't Show Godzilla marketing campaign ran into some difficulties with prospective licensees. But even so, approximately 300 businesses agreed to participate, each promising not to promote any products that revealed the complete monster before the movie hit theatres. A total of 3,000 Godzilla tie-ins worth $150 million were part of this marketing strategy, and all had signed NDAs promising not to spoil the monster design. The publicity campaign for Godzilla started with that initial brilliant first teaser trailer and continued with a second trailer released on the 7th of November 1997, which came out with TriStar's Starship Troopers, which is episode 147 of this podcast, by the way. The trailer featured the infamous Size Does Matter tagline that might also apply to this episode because I have a feeling this one's going to be big. There was also the He's As Big As campaign, which is the second way that this movie was marketed. This was created by Sony's Senior Vice President of Creative Advertising, Dana Precious. She admitted that she found it challenging to describe Godzilla's huge size to the ad agencies working on the movie without being able to give them any photographs of the monster. She came to the conclusion that providing a visual benchmark for comparison was the best way to do it. Precious and her crew spent eight months looking at billboard space in 12 cities, choosing strategic spots to post messages like 
He's as tall as the Brooklyn Bridge. He's as long as five train cars. His foot is as long as this bus and he's as long as the Hollywood sign, etc. Appetites were very much wet for this version of Godzilla based on the marketing alone. And it was planned for Godzilla to debut on 7,363 screens across 3,310 theatres or around a quarter of all movie screens in North America at the time. The statistics easily exceeded the Lost World Jurassic Park's 6,190 screens and this gave Godzilla a strong chance of making even more money than the Jurassic Park sequel at the box office. And because of this, competing studios saw Godzilla was being released and decided to schedule their films for the weeks before or after Godzilla in order to avoid losing out on the box office that they would if they went up against the King of the Monsters. Behind the scenes, though, there were some big problems because Godzilla's special effects were running far behind schedule. In the final weeks before the film's release, the digital effects team were running 24 hours a day with staff sleeping in sleeping bags between shifts in the office. And these delays meant that Godzilla couldn't be screened for studio executives or critics. The last visual effects shots for Godzilla were completed and a final cut assembled just in time for the 18th of May 1998 premiere at Madison Square Garden in New York City and the Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles. And those people that did manage to see the movie, their initial response was one of great disappointment. Richard Pusateri, a reporter for G-Fan magazine and a Godzilla enthusiast, attended the screening in LA and gave the new Godzilla the acronym Gino, Godzilla in name only, in his review of the movie. And the nickname became popular among fans very quickly. Godzilla was released on schedule on the 20th of May 1998 and it would top the box office for its first weekend, but the numbers were extremely disappointing for Sony. Sony expected a $100 million Memorial Day weekend haul because they wanted to break the $90.2 million record set by the Lost World Jurassic Park the previous year. Godzilla instead earned $55.7 million over the four-day weekend, with a first-week total of $74 million, well below industry predictions. It would stay at number one for a second week, but would drop to third after the release of The Truman Show and A Perfect Murder. Despite Emmerich and Devlin's intentions to make Godzilla for less than $90 million, the film ended up costing considerably more. TriStar listed an official budget of $136 million, but Robert Freed put the actual budget at $150 million, with an additional $80 million spent on worldwide marketing. According to the Wall Street Journal, Godzilla would need to earn at least $240 million at the domestic box office to be successful. Tracking numbers showed it had the potential to be a big hit, but despite this initial positive outlook, Godzilla would earn $136.3 million domestically in the US and $242.7 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $379 million. While it was technically a box office success, according to the numbers, it was a disappointment to Sony both financially and critically. Moviegoers were critical of the story and the acting, the weak attempts at humour, and the blatant copying from other films, in particular the Velociraptors in the Kitchen sequence from Jurassic Park. They were also critical of the new Godzilla design, with many finding it a poor substitute for the classic Godzilla. Despite the team's attempts to not emulate the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, they had indeed emulated the T-Rex. Godzilla didn't have glowing back fins or atomic breath or anything that made him Godzilla. He was a dinosaur. His size and scale were inconsistent, he could be as tall as buildings in one scene and small enough to burrow in the subway the next. Even Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, who had characters named after them in the movie for hating on Emmerich's previous films, lamented their inclusion for a specific reason. Quote, Why place us in the movie if you aren't going to have us be eaten or squashed by the monster? Unquote. And it's ironic because Sony had rejected Yandebont's budget of $120 million and it ended up making the movie for a considerable amount more several years later. Original screenwriter Terry Rossio wrote in his essay, The $100 Million Mistake, that, quote, People wanted to be scared of Godzilla, but they also loved him and wanted to root for him. So you let Godzilla stomp into the film, all scary-like, then bring on some other big monster for him to fight, so the audience gets to cheer, and then let Godzilla kick ass, swing that big J-Lo tail around. If a few buildings get smashed in the brawl, hey, that's the price we pay for having the lovable lizard defending our Earth. And there's your Godzilla movie. You're scared, you're excited, Godzilla kicks ass, you cheer and bring on the sequel. Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, I'd argue, screwed it up. 
Godzilla became a mum who wanted to go lay eggs in New York City. And when military guys fired guns at him, Godzilla would, I can't believe it even as I type it, Godzilla would actually squeal, turn, run and hide. Squeal, run away and hide in a Godzilla movie. Basic approach, wrong, unquote. Godzilla 1998 would be nominated for six Golden Raspberry Awards with two wins for Worst Supporting Actress for Maria Patillo and Worst Remake or Sequel. So I guess at least it won something. Sony Pictures paid Toho $5 million for a Godzilla sequel before Godzilla's release because they were confident they had a hit on their hands. The option gave Sony the right to produce a sequel to the Godzilla film as long as it was in production within five years of the first movie's release. They had a trilogy in mind. God bless them. Sony, though, had soured on the prospect of another Godzilla. And President and Chief Operating Officer of Sony Pictures Entertainment, John Kelly, would say after Godzilla's release that, quote, a Godzilla sequel is not a priority at this time. It's not a picture that people are rushing around the studio trying to get made, unquote. The movie's animated spin-off Godzilla the series was created at the same time and debuted on Fox Television on the 12th of September 1998. It received strong ratings and generally favourable reviews from Godzilla fans who thought it treated the monster with much more respect than the movie did. Having paid Toho for an option to make a second Godzilla, but understanding that a direct sequel to Emmerich's Godzilla wouldn't sell, Sony Pictures considered going with a reboot with absolutely no connection to the 1998 film. While the studio mulled over that idea, they decided to license Toho's Godzilla 2000 for a US theatrical release through TriStar. And this was something that Toho surprised Godzilla fans with on the 14th of December 1998, that they would begin production of Godzilla Millennium, eventually known as Godzilla 2000, for a Christmas 1999 release in Japan. The news spurred rumours that Toho had pulled the Godzilla license from TriStar in anger over the studio's mistreatment of the character. And these rumours were repeated by those unaware of or ignoring the fact that Toho had fully approved Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin's plans for Godzilla. In truth, Toho was simply exercising a clause in their contract with Sony that allowed them to go ahead and make their own Japanese Godzilla movies separate from TriStar's. Sony eventually allowed the deal with Toho to lapse and with their option to make additional American Godzilla movies run out, Toho was free to offer the rights to other American studios and in March 2010, Warner Brothers Pictures and Legendary Pictures announced they had signed an agreement with Toho to produce a new American Godzilla. And new Japanese and American Godzilla movies have been in development since 2014 when Gareth Edwards' Godzilla debuted to critical and financial success and has since spawned the Monsterverse. 2016 Shin Godzilla, well, that's something to talk about, isn't it? Let's move over to some social media thoughts. Now, this episode is already quite big. And then I put out the social media thoughts and I got so many back that this episode is just going to be huge. So I'm going to try and get through them really, really quickly. And unfortunately, that's going to include <laughs> Patreon plugs for episodes because I've got so many of these comments to go through. We're going to start with the patrons and we're going to start with Brett who says, This was my first Godzilla movie as a kid, even though die-hard Godzilla fans don't consider it as such. It was watched as much as Jurassic Park in my house. The performances were over-the-top but fun, and the action was non-stop, as Roland Emmerich always provides in his films. To this day, I have a great time with it. Can't believe it's been 25 years. And as always, I'm going to put a plug in the show notes for patrons who have podcasts. Brett's is called Dissect That Film. There'll be a plug in the show notes. We have a comment from Nicholas who says, I think the trailers for it were better than the film. They got the excitement going before we actually got to see it. It's not a terrible film. It's quite enjoyable until it just turns into a Jurassic Park ripoff at the end. Perennial commenter Andy says, Warning, Suncoast motion picture company story incoming. Due to the excessive secretness of the image of Godzilla, we had an absolute job lot of Godzilla merchandise hiding out in the back room. So we got a look at the beast. To say we were underwhelmed was an understatement. Many Jurassic Park jokes abounded. This wasn't a Godzilla movie more than it was another Independence Day destructo porn that Roland Emmerich made famous. Throwing passive messages about the environment and nuclear testing as cautionary messages, but really doing nothing to address them is another staple of the big popcorn movies of this era. Maybe I just need to go back and watch it again since the last time I watched it was on VHS and I know that a lot of 90s kids loved it, but it wasn't my massive pile of fish. Plug for Andy's podcast Geek Salad in the show notes too. Derek says, My father introduced me to Godzilla at a very young age. I was very excited for this one and saw it opening weekend. 
I remember leaving the theatre feeling it lacked heart, and I haven't seen it since. I'm curious to hear your thoughts and to see if it's worth another viewing. Derek's podcast, The Midnight Myth. Information in the show notes. Pete says, I saw this in theatres as a 12-year-old and thought it was pretty fun, but didn't seem like a Godzilla movie. Back then, I kind of thought it was a good thing. Now, the reverence I have for Godzilla as a figure or character means so much awesomeness is left on the table. Plug for Pete's podcast, Middle Class Film Class, in the show notes. And the final patron comment comes from Zoe, who says, There were parts of it that were really entertaining, but overall, it was a disappointment. And a plug for Zoe's podcast, Backlook Cinema, also in the show notes. We're going to move over to Twitter. We've got a lot to go through on Twitter as well. We're going to start with at GetMeAnotherPod, who says, Not our favourite to say the least, but it did have a great marketing campaign. At ShootTheFlick said, Honestly, I loved it as a kid. I actually had my parents buy me the VHS of it over Jurassic Park. Not a proud moment. Is it dumb? Yes, but there's definitely still some nostalgic enjoyment I get out of it. Plus, this is where I discovered Jean Renault, and he is great. At Connections Cult said, It's Foo. They didn't use poo, but I changed it to poo. At 100 Things Film said, It was so bad that I almost left the cinema. Then they killed Godzilla, so I thought I might as well stick around, only for there to be still 40 minutes of substandard raptors running around Madison Square Gardens. Absolute drivel. At TSPOE underscore pod said, Hate, hate, hate this movie. Godzilla in name only, Gino. It was such a huge disappointment for me as a Godzilla fan. They took everything that was Godzilla, whether it be the serious and poignant of the early films or the later goofier ones, and threw it all out the window. At launching to pilot said, I enjoyed Jumiroquai's Deeper Underground and the video set in the cinema. That is all. At Diabolical Pod said, The creature design was pretty terrible in every aspect, but scale, that enormous footprint that Ferris Bueller is in, that was a great moment. And it has a few of those. Good concepts and moments, but on the whole, quite underwhelming. At DW Lundberg said, Saw it in a crowded Brooklyn theatre, and the way that the audience laughed and clapped and cheered at all the New York destruction, you would have thought it was the greatest movie ever made. At home, it was an entirely different story. Just stupid and unfunny from start to finish. At Records and Bands said, I remember sleeping through it in the cinema. At Cinebandicoot19 said, The other half of its legacy, that's a lot of fish gif. At Bacon Knight said, I wrote about it a while back for my buddy's site. I enjoy it. At Cinema Medicine said, It's a fun 90s movie, a fairly fun kaiju film. As a Godzilla film, it's horrible. Yet it has a certain charm to it. I do enjoy watching it regularly. At Thief CGT said, It's dumb and silly, but as someone who had no ties or connections to the original, I kind of had fun with it back in the day. At Corona T said, I really enjoyed the soundtrack and I always love seeing Jean Renault on screen but that's about all I love. I watched the classic Godzilla movies with my father when I was a tiny tot and still enjoy watching them now, but this one fell flat for me. Moving over to Instagram, we have Africanized Kitchen who says, Godzilla purists can hate this movie all they want, but it's still a fantastic big monster flick in its own right. Even with that dreadful baby subplot, still the action beats are amazing and I love how smart they made Godzilla, Jean Renault, for the win. At Asian Cinema Film Club said, It's a good movie, wailed on too much by snark casters. It understood what we wanted from a Godzilla movie, had a great setting and put its own twist on things. The fact it also stars Jean Renault and spawned an awesome Saturday morning cartoon series is just an added bonus. And the final comment comes over from Facebook from Tony who says, While a good premise and idea, several aspects of this film were not well thought through, especially the ending scene with the hatching eggs hidden in the ruins. I understand that they wanted to hint that the adventure wasn't over, but it felt like an unnecessary scene. Overall, the acting was decent and the film is worthy of at least one rewatch. Thank you, everyone, for your many, many comments for Godzilla. Very mixed comments for Godzilla, but understandably so, this is a very mixed movie. And if you do want your comments read out in episodes, the thoughts posts go up on social media, normally on a Friday. I am at Mobile Diorama on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So find the post, add your comment and I will read it out and credit you in these episodes. At the end of episodes, I normally do a little bit of a summary. My final thoughts, shall we say, on the movie. And I'm going to start my summary by being honest and saying that for a very long time, this was the only Godzilla movie that I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I expect many people are in the same boat. I've always had a fondness for this movie. I never thought it was a particularly good movie, but I still enjoyed watching it. There was something about it that I really liked. 
And I love monster movies. I love creature features. So this is kind of the sort of movie that I do like. I'm not a Godzilla expert and I will never claim to be an expert on the character. I still haven't seen the original and that's mostly because it's so hard to find. But I know the history and lore of Godzilla. I know what he came from and what he means to so many. And to be honest, I expected that an announcement that Verbal Diorama is doing this Godzilla movie rather than the original might be a sour one for a few people. But I wanted to cover this movie for a reason. It's not a terrible movie. It might not be Godzilla. And arguably, if it was called, I don't know, American Monster, I feel like it would be way better received just generally. It would never be seen as a masterpiece, but take away the Godzilla name and it actually becomes okay. Yes, it takes far too many cues from Jurassic Park. Yes, it takes far too many cues from Independence Day. Yes, it takes far too many cues from Jaws. And yes, the characters are pretty standard cliches, except for some standout performances by Jean Reno and also Hank Azaria as well, who are both at least trying to work with what little they have. But there are some genuinely great scenes in this movie. The scene of the fisherman running from a huge wave of water is exciting and menacing. Matthew Broderick standing in a huge footprint is also great. That doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with the movie. There's a lot wrong with this movie. Emmerich's vision alters Godzilla's origin story. In the original 1954 film, Godzilla emerges in response to American nuclear testing. And this is a very important point. It's very poignant for Japan. But this changed in the 1998 version. And it instead casts the blame upon the French. And this is where Jean Renault comes in as a French secret serviceman sent to America to clean up his country's mess. And this unwillingness to deal with this complicated history between America and Japan feels fundamentally rooted in an extreme level of patriotism. It comes across as a decision seemingly made to appease the American studio heads and audiences. And this could have been a perfect opportunity to take responsibility for past actions and try to make amends. But this movie just doesn't want to do that. And that's disappointing. It's easy to look back at what could have been. And it's likely the Yanderbob version might have been received differently. But we didn't get that version. And we're never going to get that version. Any remake is subject to the rules of adaptation. An adaptation could be a shot-for-shot -shot remake, like Gus Van Sant's 1998 remake of Psycho, which copied Hitchcock's camera movements and editing. Or it could be a completely new retelling of a story with the same name. And Godzilla is very much the latter. It's made for a general audience, people who might know the Godzilla name, but not really much else. And this is for an audience who went out for Jurassic Park. This movie is 25 years old this year. And while it struggles to hold up to a modern lens, both through its story and its effects, it's actually a reasonably admirable effort to make something that could be so differentiated from what came before. It's a unique entry into kaiju cinema for that very reason. This movie did make money. No one lost anything from this movie existing. There's nothing like this Godzilla and there never will be ever again. Toho might have disowned it. Tristar might have disowned it. And the MonsterVerse might have given us something more accurate to what fans expected. But for many people, this is their Godzilla. And for them, size does matter. Or at least inconsistent size does matter. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on the 1998 Godzilla. And if you've listened this far, thank you so much. It would be so wonderful if you could take a moment to help this podcast grow and get out there. I'm always looking for new listeners. It's really important for any podcast to grow and expand their reach. And I can't do that without the help of you who's listening right now. So if you have enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with friends and family or retweeting or liking posts on social media. As I said, I'm at Verbal Diorama. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can also say hi on that social media if you like too. I will always respond. Or you could leave a rating or review wherever you found this episode. I always do recommendations. I'm just going to do one this time because if you like this episode on Godzilla, you might also like the previous episode on Bong Joon-ho's The Host. I am doing a month of kaiju movies and The Host, it's not really comparable to Godzilla 1998, but if you want a movie where it's quite happy to show its monster straight away and it also has some very deep and meaningful themes, then go for Bong Joon-ho and go for The Host. It's a phenomenal movie. I highly recommend it. Next episode, Kaijun continues with the King of the Monsters again. This time, the actual king. Because we're going to go to Toho. And I know so many people are going to be like, yeah, she's going to Toho. 
but I'm not doing the original Godzilla because, as I said, I've not seen it. And so I can't really do any of the sequels to that movie because I've not seen the original. But I wanted to talk about a very specific movie. I wanted to talk about the history and legacy of Shin Godzilla, the 2016 Toho reboot of Godzilla. And I wanted to talk more about the Japanese history of Godzilla because you'll notice if you've listened to this, I haven't really talked about the Japanese history of Godzilla. And I did that for a reason, because I wanted to do a two-parter. I wanted to do, look, this is the American version of Godzilla, and this is the story of how the American version came about. And then Shin Godzilla, I wanted to go into the history of Godzilla and talk about the history of Godzilla all the way through from 1954 to 2016. Shin Godzilla, or Godzilla Resurgence, as it's called in some countries. I saw Shin Godzilla for the first time last year, and I was blown away by how incredible that movie is and how poignant that movie is as well. And I was just, I really want to talk about Shin Godzilla. And in all honesty, Kaijun came from two movies that I saw at the same time, actually. It came from The Host and it came from Shin Godzilla. I'm so excited to be talking next week about Shin Godzilla. Please join me next week for that episode. And my podcast is free and it always will be free. There will never be a charge for listening. But if you do want to help this podcast financially, I use the money raised from this podcast for new equipment, for subscriptions to services, for hosting. It basically helps keep Verbal Diorama afloat. Then you can sign up to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you can join the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Fern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. Fish for all of you. I have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch with me on social media or by emailing verbaldiorama at gmail.com. My website is verbaldiorama.com. You can also find my stuff at filmstories.co.uk. I write in the magazine. I also write articles as well. and. You can find the Independent Podcast Awards at independentpodcastawards.com. Please check that out if you are an independent UK or Irish podcaster. And finally... Come on, Nick, this way! Ah, Not this way! Not that way! Master arms on. Showing a good laser track on top of the garden, selecting LGB. How much time do we have left? Less than 30 seconds. Oh, God. <gasps> Bye. Movie should know.